Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us and you reveal your will. We pray that we would um, study it and look into it um, with joy, remembering it is a privilege, um, knowing that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May we hide it in our hearts. May we store it in our innermost being. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so the motivation for this whole series is to encourage you guys to read the Bible. <laughs> um, and actually, I know reading the Bible is really hard, very difficult. I, mean, I think a big part of it is that um, you're not quite sure what you're reading uh, because the text is so old, right? The Old Testament, um, at least the Torah, is 3,500 years old. The New Testament is 2,000 years old. Um, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to review all the books of the Bible and then give you um, a sense of what each uh, book is about, give you its distinctive theme, and then um, read a little passage of it and so you have a little flavor and that way you can sort of situate yourself in the story of the Bible and know what you're reading. All right, so let's do a little bit of a history, right? Let's review um, so we kind of situate ourselves in the prophets. Um, the, so you have the story, well you have Moses, right? Um, and then after, Mo he, he, uh, he's the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant, and after Moses, Israel goes into deep spiritual decline um, in the period of the Judges. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and then we have another high spiritual point, which is David. Uh, David is Israel's greatest king. He is the sort of the model of the godly king. He's a man after God's own heart. And then do you remember to give uh, given to David um, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Does anyone remember what very significant thing happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Anointing. Mm, good guess. <laughs> <laughs> the anointing would be in 1 Samuel earlier oh, in the story. Yeah. Okay. This is, in my opinion, the most arguably the most important passage in the Old Testament, maybe next to the Abrahamic Covenant. So this would be the Davidic Covenant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the prophet Nathan comes to King David and he says that uh, your son will reign after you and he will have an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom will never, never end and he will reign in justice and peace and everything that I've promised to my people will come true in your son. He will build a temple. So, for a while, it seems to come true in his son, Solomon. Um, Solomon seems in many ways the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And at the beginning, you know, he, he establishes this worldwide, not worldwide, but this large regional empire. The wealth of the Gentiles come pouring in. There's peace. There's no more war. And so for a long time, people are saying, this is it. It's happening. But then what happens? Solomon marries foreign wives. His, they lead his heart away from God, and he apostatizes by the time the by the end of his life. So it's not Solomon. And then um, God is displeased, and so uh, God uh, sends his prophet to one of Solomon's uh, sort of uh, lieutenants, Jeroboam. The kingdom is going to be split, right? So you have a uh, uh, after Solomon. You have two, two kingdoms, um, one under Jeroboam, 
and then uh, the other under his son, Rehoboam. That's right. So uh, Jerobo Rehoboam keeps David's tribe, Judah, and Benjamin being like sort of uh, inside of Judah. It's this tiny, it's the smallest of all the tribes because of an event hap that happened in Judges. Um, he gets basically two tribes, but in, in a lot of the language it's just said it's like one tribe, Judah, right? So the land becomes Judah. And then the, uh, the, the ten northern tribes are called Israel. But um, things start to immediately deteriorate because Jeroboam establishes idolatry right from the beginning of his kingdom. He sets up two golden calves, which reminds us of what happened um, at Sinai, right, with, uh, in the wilderness with the, uh, the Israelites. He sets up two of them this time, uh, Bethel and Dan. And so immediately he's like mixing the Canaanite religion with uh, the worship of God, right? That we call that syncretism. And so the spiritual decline uh, in the northern kingdom is immediate and rapid and um, long decline until um, in 722 BC you have the Assyrians. The Assyrians sack the capital city of uh, Samaria. And um, the, the Assyrians, like any empire, is struggling with the problem. How do you maintain an empire? Because uh, the local people are going to rise up in revolution. So what the Assyrians do is, first of all, they pluck the best and the brightest. So you look for the most talented Israelites, artisans, craftsmen, scribes, and you take them back to the homeland area so they can profit and enrich the, the center. And then what the Assyrians decide to do is they, they relocate peoples across the empire. So they take a whole bunch of Israelites and they scatter them throughout the Assyrian empire to weaken their sort of nationalistic resolve. And then they take a whole bunch of other foreign peoples and they resettle them in the land of Israel. And Remember that the Israelites were already spiritually weak. They, they descend immediately into apostasy. And so they intermarry. And so what ends up resulting is a people called? Samaritans. Samaritans, that's right. Okay? Named after the capital. Now, story of Judah is not that much different. <laughs> they last longer. Uh, under uh, the, the house of David, they have some outstanding kings. The two most outstanding kings would be Hezekiah, Josiah. But they have a few, you know, okay, medium kings, you know, Asa, Joash. Um, but like Israel, the inevitable, inevitable spiritual decay, spiritual idolatry, syncretism, and so forth. And so the kingdom also declines. Um, but it takes longer. 586 BC, you have the Babylonians. The Babylonians have the same problem as the Assyrians have. How do you quell rebellion? How do you, how do you make sure people um, don't rise up in revolt? Um, so what they do is they take the um, deportation policy of the Assyrians and they just amp it up. Uh, they take the elite of Judea, 
um, but uh, they take more. <laughs> a large, large, large population. And effectively, it's like hostages. They put them in, they resettle them in Babylon. So this is the best and the brightest of, Israel, of uh, Judah. Who's going to lead any revolution? The educated, the elite, but they're all <laughs> in Babylon, right? Um, so that's the exile. They take huge percentage of the population. And then the people who are left, the Babylonians don't really do these forced resettlements. And also the, 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 the people there are more faithful to God, so they stay relatively pure, though they also have the same problem of remarriage. But what they end up becoming, because they're on, there's only one tribe, the, the 10 northern tribes become quote-unquote lost, right? Um, they disappear into intermarriage as Samaritans, and then they're scattered throughout the uh, Assyrian Empire. But the, uh, the people here, they stay relatively pure. The tribe of Judah, so who do they become? What are they called? Jews. The word Jew comes from Judeans, so they're, we know them henceforth as Jews. Okay, so that's the basic storyline. Any questions about the basic storyline? All right. But then when people say they are Jewish now, it's not, it has nothing to do with that. Yes, that's exactly what it has it to does. do with. Yeah, so because it's... it's that, that line so basically, 12 tribes, 10 disappear. 10, 10 intermarry, and they become scattered and dispersed. Only one tribe and Benjamin. It's always like Ju Judea, Judah and Benjamin, because Benjamin's tiny. Um, so the, Ju the, Ju the Judean tribe survives. They stay intact, and they become the Jewish people. Okay? Um, so God, in this period, sends prophets. Let me try a different marker. Um, he sends prophets to warn the people. Um, he, he reminds the prophets, remind uh, the people of the Mosaic Covenant, the curses of the covenant, which would be like things like famine, disease, uh, all the plagues that Egypt experienced. Now it's too hot. Um, only I'm hot, maybe. <laughs> you, you, you're teaching in action. Yeah, exactly. Um, and their warning of uh, judgment, God is going to judge the people. And then the ultimate judgment is expulsion from the land, just like what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, they will be cast out east of Eden, because the promised land was a kind of garden-like land. This would be exile. And so uh, there are two kinds of basic kinds of prophets. There's the non-writing prophets. Give me an example of a non-writing prophet. They don't leave a book. Huh? Nathan. Nathan's a very good one. Right. But uh, the two most prominent would be Elijah, Elisha. Right? They don't leave books. But they're railing against apostasy, idolatry of God's people. And then, so they're the first kind of wave. And then the prophets kind of switch. And they start to write. Um, it doesn't really say in the Bible why they start to write, but I guess like psychologically we can kind of piece it together. The, the, the non-writing prophets, um, the people haven't gone so bad. So they have more popular connection to the people. But by the time you get to the writing prophets, they become more and more and more isolated. More and more lonely voices 
crazy people, basically, is the way the population thinks of them. And so they preserve down their writing. I think the, another way to think of it is that um, the writing prophets began not just to warn, but to talk about the future. So they preserve it down in writing. And then the writing prophets are divided into two major groups. We call them major and minor. This is not um, in the, these, these words are not in the Bible. This is just the way we organize them. The only difference is length of the book. <laughs> so there are five major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentation. Lamentation is actually really short, but because it's attributed to Jeremiah, they're there together. And then there are 12 minor prophets. And we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets, six today, six next week. Okay? Now, the pro so here's, here's, here's where we are, right? So we're in the present, and the prophets are looking to the future. And they're warning the people, and they're saying, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to the Lord, you will experience the curse of the covenant, which is exile. But in addition to that, even as they're warning, right? So it's kind of a strange way of, of talking. If you don't repent, there'll be exile. But then the prophets are like, okay, but after the exile, <laughs> right? They're already immediately looking ahead. Um, exile is not the end of the story. It's not a disobedience, punishment, boom, death, over, end of story. But there's a story after that story, which is the return from exile, um, the restoration. This is not spoken of necessarily in the Torah. This is just pure grace. There's nothing that God's people deserve to return back from exile, but God will bring his people back to the promised land, reestablish them, and there'll be a renewal and so forth. So that's the, that's the storyline. That's what we're going to look at in the, uh, the prophets. Any quick questions there? All right. So let's look at the first book, Hosea. So Hosea begins with a very shocking command. Uh, God commands his prophet to marry an unfaithful woman. Um, when we looked at the major prophets, we talked about how um, there were many ways the prophets spoke. They spoke sometimes or oftentimes through words, but a lot of times they spoke through dramatic actions, right? So that their life became a sermon. Um, so Hosea's life is about to become this sort of living drama. What do you, what do you call that art piece where like um, you're just like, you're like there? Installation, like not installation. But anyways, I should have looked it up. Um, but where you're like, you are the art, right? And you're standing in front of the stage and everyone's, like I've heard of those artists where like they'll live inside of a cube for like three weeks or something, right? Or they won't shower for two months or something on stage. So that's, that's what's happening to Hosea, right? So let, let me read to you Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom. Um, it's a very strong word. I, I kind of always joke, You'll, the only place you'll ever hear the word whore and whoredom with relatively frequency is in the church. Um, the word whoredom there means unfaithfulness or prostitute, right? So it could have been a prostitute that he's asked to marry, or he's asked to marry a woman with known qualities of, of unfaithfulness, right? Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Notice the parallel. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, I think uh, Hosea here is not like, oh, I know this woman is going to be unfaithful to me. I know she's going to crush my heart, so I'm going to go into this marriage. It's a sham marriage. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to reserve my heart. I think not. 
Um, if you look at uh, the passages, it shows you his anguish. He loved Gomer. He completely, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, unguardedly loved her. Right? So uh, this is why reading the Bible was so confusing. Because you like read this and I go, wait, am I hearing it right? God told a prophet to marry, you know what I mean? To marry a prostitute or yeah, a very like, unfaithful woman, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very strange, it's very strange. God, I, the way I look at it is like this. Um, the, it's, let, let, let's say there's like a movie theater and there's a little fire in the corner. So you go to the movie theater and you're like, everyone, let's get out of our seats. The fire is growing. Nobody, everyone's complacent. No one's listening. So you start to be like more dramatic. You start waving your arms. And then finally, you set yourself on fire, right? Just to get everyone's attention. It's sort of like the, the volume becomes louder and louder, more dramatic. I don't know if that helps. I'm thinking, what? All right, let me, let me, so let's go on. Um, so, so Hosea is asked to marry this unfaithful woman, and it tells us something really deep about our relationship with God. Because the Bible talks about all kinds of um, metaphors for our relationship. God is our king, we're his subjects. God is our shepherd, we're his sheep. God is our father, we're his children, right? But the deepest, most intense of all relationships is God is our husband, we are his bride. Um, marriage is the most intense, the most critical, the most powerful relationship you could ever have. And that's what God is saying. And so what does that tell us? It tells us a couple of things that our relationship to him must be exclusive. No other gods, no other idols, um, but we must love him alone. It tells us that our relationship with him must be intimate. Um, it has to engage your whole heart. Um, God is looking for a passionate love relationship with us. Um, he doesn't want you, he doesn't want a friendship with us. Do you know what I mean? Um, or he doesn't want neighborly relations with us. It shows that we are to give him the first priority. No other relationship is as important as marriage. Um, so you can't sort of like put God in the periphery of your life or think about him only on Sunday mornings. He needs to be the commanding, driving uh, thought and uh, paradigm in your life that, 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 that centers everything. So Hosea goes ahead and marries Gomer. And then he experiences deep personal betrayal and uh, his heart is crushed. Um, there's some really poignant details in uh, Hosea. For example, he names each of his children. And then his third child, he names uh, him Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami in Hebrew means not my own. So he knows this child is the child of unfaithfulness. He loves this child. So, you know, you can almost imagine um, Hosea calling, you know, the shame that he experiences. He says, Lo-Ami, time to come home time for dinner. Everyone knows what's going on, right? Finally, um, Gomer runs after her, a lover. He's cruel to her. He sells her into slavery. And so Hosea then, this is what happens. Hosea 3, and the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Um, so what happens is Hosea goes to a slave auction. 
uh, we're given this interesting detail, verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. So what happens is um, she's in a slave auction, um, and he redeems her. Redeem means to buy someone out of slavery. Um, you can almost imagine what everyone was uh, witnessing. It's, remember, he's dramatizing the story of Israel in his life. Everyone knows Gomer is an unfaithful woman. Um, she deserves her fate. And then they see Hosea in the uh, stands. And then they see Hosea bidding to repurchase his wife and then to redeem her and bring her back home. It must have been such a powerful uh, thing to witness and to watch. And it shows us God's grace and mercy. We are the unfaithful bride. We're the wayward wife. But God will purchase us back, bring us home, um, and, and cover our shame. So then verse 4, For the children of Israel shall, shall dwell many days without king or priest, prince. So he's talking about the, the coming exile. There's going to be no king, right? Um, this is akin to Gomer's slavery. Without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. There's the return, right? And seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come to feed come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So Hosea talks about the latter days, right? And the latter days, uh, we'll talk about it. I have a, I have a chart. Oh, here it is. <laughs> um, so we're talking here about the end of history, uh, the latter days. Sometimes it's called the last day. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. Um, this is this future event that's coming when all of uh, history is going to be resolved. Um, this is after the exile, the restoration. And then um, notice it says David, their king. So David's going to come back. Um, remember the uh, Davidic covenant, right? Which I said maybe one of the first, one of two most critical, most important passages in the Old Testament to understanding everything else that happens. Um, David's son. Now, you have to understand in the ancient world, when you're somebody's son, it's like you're them, right? Um, people say to me all the time, Judah looks just like you, right? Uh, so I've replicated myself in Judah. That's the way sonship worked in the Old Testament. You're in the image of your father. It's like the father lives on. It's like the father never died. So when David's son is going to reign, it's saying David's going to come back. But we know David is a type. He's a picture. It's talking about, of course... Jesus Christ. Um, any questions on Hosea? So, so, so what, what Hosea is saying is that the, the Vedic covenant is going to be truly finally fulfilled um, when God, redeem, God purchases people back. It gives us a little bit more of a sense of who this king is going to be. He's going to be a king, um, a husband, who's aggrieved, who's weeping because his spouse has been unfaithful to him, but who graciously purchases his people back. Michael, you said in the past lecture that the prophets are sort of marginal people that were hard to believe or kind of like our homeless people these days. Sort of, yeah. And so this guy goes and marries a, a prostitute and this is supposed to be some sign to the people. But they didn't have TV and magazines on the, the grocery store shelves. So, sure. You know, how did millions of people hear about this one obscure guy marrying a prostitute which yeah, so, um, I, I, yeah, so the, you know, I think as modern people, we sort of have, it's hard for us to imagine how ancient peoples operated, right? But uh, in the ancient world, word of mouth was incredibly powerful. 
so stories would immediately spread like wildfire. Um, even though they're marginal people, the people, especially in Judah, never completely broke from God. So even as they kind of like dismissed the prophets or ignored the prophets, they recognized their status. So here's the prophet Hosea. Here's the story playing out. Word spreads. But you're right. Maybe in his immediate generation, it doesn't have that much of an impact. But he writes it down so that future generations can read about it. Do you have access to the temple? Who? The Hosea. Was he, did he ever go to the temple to like lead worship and things like that? Was that what the prophets did? No, the priests would do that. Sometimes the prophets were from the priest class. But uh, the prophets were not necessarily. And also the, the whole priest, the, that temple structure became corrupt. It became filled with um, uh, priests who, you know, would exploit, um, take bribes, um, take advantage of the people. So increasingly, the prophets start to distance themselves from the whole uh, temple structure. So they talk about the temple being destroyed, all the priests being killed. Um, all these prophecies, everything he wrote, and all the stories about him was soap opera heard by word of mouth. Yes. With the telephone game and all the distortions therein. And uh, I guess so. Distortions is a little bit of a strong way because this was sort of a non-visual, non-media culture. Word of mouth had much more of a preserved tradition. So um, people were much more careful to preserve. Like they, usually what happens is stories were told in poetic form. In other words, they had this kind of beat this rhythm and meter. So it's easier to memorize, easier to transfer and to convey. Um, we actually have a lot of evidence from the ancient world where uh, oral transmission has enormously strong preservation, even across centuries. So it's, 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 it's difficult to sort of compare it to the modern world. We, we don't have a memory anymore. We've externalized our memory to the internet and books. So we don't remember anything. But in the ancient world, they didn't have those things. So people just had this intense practice of memorization, repetition. Um, that's why most things were like, most things that were preserved were in poetic form. So it had this beat to help you to remember. Yeah. All right. Let's go on. Joel, next, pro next book. So what is Joel about? Joel is about the end of history. And here I want to talk about this whole concept of history in the Bible. Um, in the Bible, history is not a circle that repeats itself over and over again, but it's a line. It's progressing. Um, and the Bible talks about the end of history, when history will cease. Um, and what do we mean by that? We don't mean the end of time. We mean the end of the drama of human events that began in the Garden of Eden, that was sort of like amplified in the story of Abraham and Moses, right? The, the covenants. And then finally, the end of that story is when all of the dramas played out, the resolution, curtains fall, no more human history. And then the Bible talks about how at the end of that history will be the new creation. God will restore, renew, beautify everything. Everything is made new. And that event is described as a single day called the Day of the Lord. So um, human history marches forward, and there's this cataclysmic, traumatic, intense, like bright event, like a bomb exploding, and that's the Day of the Lord, right? So that's what Joel is talking about. Um, so the Bible teaches, in that sense, uh, two-age eschatology. 
So let me write this word down. Eschaton means uh, end. So eschatology is a theology of how history will end. Very important because the Bible is constantly talking about the end of the history. The Bible talks about the beginning of history, uh, then the middle drama, and then the end, right? Um, and the Bible's eschatology is a two-age eschatology. This age, the age we're living in, is, an e is evil. It's passing away like a shadow. The age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, will be everlasting, full of justice and righteousness. Um, this is to distinguish it from a two-world eschatology, which is what a lot of sort of popular Christian belief uh, assumes, which is that there's two worlds, right? You could think of them as two planes. There's earth and there's heaven. Earth is hopelessly lost. It's in decay. It's spiraling downhill. It's sort of like being on the Titanic. We're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's going down. But we're going to be rescued out of earth into heaven. Um, and that kind of eschatology says this world is hopelessly lost. And so our hope is the above world. But the Bible doesn't say that. Our, our hope isn't a, uh, on top of us, above us. Our hope is ahead of us. When God will come back and restore this creation, which means this creation matters. This world matters. Right? But then the two world view, does it mean that the earth is going to keep going? No, it just burns and, and is destroyed. Okay. Now, the Bible does have language where it says this world will be destroyed. Um, a, a, a good example would be Second Peter, where Peter t says the whole world will be lit up in flames. So, so, it's, so there you have to really think, um, you have to be really careful. Um, what is going to be destroyed? The, the, the way the Bible talks is, it, and he, here is a master paradigm for everything. Um, the Bible doesn't have precise, um, um, segmented uh, events with precision language for each event. It's talking about one thing, and it just uses different imagery, different language to talk about all about the one thing, the day of the Lord. Everything is about the day of the Lord. All the prophets are talking about the day of the Lord. All of Revelation is talking about the day of the Lord. All of, you know, when Jesus, uh, he, he's, he's in the garden, he's talking about the end of time. He's talking about the day of the Lord. So what is this fire? It's all the evil, all the injustice, all the corruptness of the world. See, see the difference between two age and two world again? Um, two, two world is that the earth is going to be destroyed. It's irredeemably lost. And in our future is heaven. Uh, a non-physical kind of like floaty angelic heaven. Two-world a two-age eschatology is that this world itself will be redeemed. So the king will come back. Heaven will invade earth. There'll be a marriage of heaven and earth. The king will make everything right. So it's sort of like, you know, the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, king Aragorn, he comes back. He makes Gondor beautiful and good again. He's not leading his people, kick Gondor to the side and go to some other place. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, that's right. That's a two-world eschatology. All right, so uh, Joel 2. Joel, Joel has lots of vivid imagery about the day of the Lord. Let's read one. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Uh, just to do another Lord of the Rings uh, illusion, uh, when it says it is near, it really makes me think of that scene where Gandalf is in the mines of Moria. 
and he's like reading the last accounts of the, uh, the dwarves. They're coming, right? <laughs> the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Um, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, what does that remind you of? What other scene in the Bible? Day of darkness and gloom. Day of clouds and thick darkness. No, uh, don't think ahead. Think only, think only back. Huh? Plagues. Yeah, sort of. Were, were there clouds necessarily in the plagues? Don't think only back. In time. Yeah. Exodus, good. Tay, where in Exodus? Very good. You're getting close. It's Mount Sinai, right? This is Mount Sinai. The whole mountain is covered in dark clouds, right? <coughs> it happens again, by the way, in Mount of Transfiguration. Thick, dark clouds, right? So what do the thick, dark clouds mean? It represents the presence of God. Presence of God could be a happy thing, but only if you're righteous. <laughs> then, if you're not, it is a terror. Like blackness, they're spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army. So he's talking about this invading army that's coming. Their like has never been before, nor will they be again, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. All right. So, somebody said cross of Jesus Christ. That's exactly correct. It happens again, darkness. Uh, the presence of God comes, judgment, but it falls on one human being. Unprecedented. Nobody in the Old Testament understood it like that. They understood it as dark clouds, judgment on the evil of all of, of uh, humanity, not falling on a single person, certainly not falling on God's chosen Messiah, King. All right, so that's why everyone's like, I don't understand. That's why Paul had to go to Arabia for three years and think about it. Right. Um, all right. So next book, Amos. Uh, so Amos, Amos is writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. And even like 50 years before the Assyrians come, everything is good. Party time, peace, enormous wealth and prosperity. This is under the reign of Jeroboam II. And so the people believed, ah, all is well. God loves us because I'm doing, they had an excellent gospel, uh, prosperity gospel. Uh, they, they said God loves us. There's all this talk about the day of the Lord. We know what it's about. God is going to come and destroy our enemies. And so Amos is like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, the day of the Lord is for you. Um, and he rails against uh, Israel breaking the covenant. And the sin he, break, he rails against particularly is the rich um, exploiting the poor. It's injustice to the poor. Um, this, is, this is a theme that you see almost all throughout the uh, prophets. Um, the prophets rail against many things. Um, idolatry, yes, that's central. Um, you know, sexual immorality, uh, acts of violence, but maybe the number one sin that is constantly spoken again and again, injustice to the poor. Um, and Amos is particularly famous for that. He's talking about this enormous gap between the rich and the poor. Um, let me just read you Amos 5. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone. Hewn just means a cut. So this is, this is like, these are mansions. These are very expensive homes. You have built uh, houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, 
and turn aside the needy in the gate. And then I just want to throw in another verse, Amos 5.24, probably the most famous verse in, in Amos, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was appropriated by an American, famous American person in a speech. What speech would that be? Yes, the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King, right? Um, Dr. King loved uh, Amos because Amos spoke so much about justice. So what is justice? This is a very important concept in the Bible. It's the word mishpat. It occurs 200 times, over 200 times in the Old Testament. Um, what does it mean? It means justice in the sense of fairness, so fair treatment. So, for example, you don't have like a poor person and a rich person come um, seeking justice and you're like, well, I like the rich person. Well, I'll take some bribes from the rich person. And you give them differential judge, uh, judgments or differential decisions. So justice is equal treatment. But justice is also giving people their rights. Don't, you don't deprive them of what is rightfully theirs. And in the Bible, in the Torah, the poor have rights. And this is why, um, and they have rights to sustenance. They have rights to um, um, all kinds of things that um, mitigate their poverty. And when you deprive the poor of those rights, you're, you're violating mishpat. This is why so many times when it says mishpat in the Bible, it says it's care for widows, orphans, and foreigners. Those are the three classes of people that were particularly susceptible to exploitation. So this challenges our modern notions of justice, right? We tend to think of justice in the modern world in terms of criminal justice. Criminal justice is, <coughs> excuse me, criminal justice is when you uh, catch the bad guys and put them in prison. Um, that's justice too, but there's also economic and social justice. Um, and economic social justice, what's that? Um, that's equity for the poor, that's protection of the weak. Um, this is the way uh, the Torah, this is the way the, the first five books of the Bible constantly talk about Israelite society. This is the way it's supposed to be. A land of brotherly love where everyone's taking care of one another. You, you can't ultimately deprive people of their land, for example. The land cannot be transferred in perpetuity. Land is wealth. So in other words, you can never take away somebody's wealth from their family. Um, everyone's supposed to live at relative equal wealth. Um, but what happens is that's almost immediately violated. Um, for example, the year of Jubilee, which restores everyone's land, was almost certainly never practiced, ever. Uh, it was just sort of an ideal. Um, so, it, so what happens is slowly land becomes lost so that there's this landless poor that they just become basically workers. And then you have these rich people who accumulate enormous tracts of land. So you have this huge separation of the rich and the poor. And this is what Amos is talking about. He's condemning them. He's telling them, judgment is coming for you. Um, there's this line, he says, and turn aside the needy at the gate. So the needy, they have these petitions. They have um, these rights and claims, but then that society just ignored them and uh, denied them these, uh, these rights. Um, any questions on that? Yes, that is a very good question. Uh, I, so the answer to that is yes. The poor are experiencing injustice uh, because God never intended for people to experience grinding poverty. 
Um, so as human beings, as God's children, image in the God, images of God, we have an obligation to help the poor. That's extremely clear in the New Testament. What does that mean for national policy? The Bible is silent about that. America is not Israel. Um, but it's very clear what the church is supposed to do. So if you look at the description of the early church, the language mirrors the Torah, right? There was no needy people. There was no needy, uh, needy uh, people in the church because everyone was sharing. Everyone was um, contributing. Um, so the church took care of the poor. Now, you know, so somebody could say, oh, so then that just means we're supposed to do this through private uh, charitable organizations, not through uh, national policy. I don't want to get into that debate because then, you know, when you talk about politics and everyone picks up knives and we can no longer have civil discourse. <laughs> maybe not in this discussion, but is there a mindset or an approach that we should as individuals apply in our own lives on a tactical, non-strategic... Yeah, so I think what, well, I mean, if, so if you look at the New Testament, for example, there were several wealthy people, like Lydia, um, where Paul didn't say, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Um, so it is acceptable, it is uh, good to be rich in the sense that um, you have more resources, more capability of helping people. But I do think in general there is, a, there is a, a trajectory in the Bible that you cannot be indifferent to what's happening with the poor and then maintain your wealth. Um, there has to be a flow out. Um, so what does, that, what does that flow look like? And I've talked about it. Here's one standard, the tithe. Tithe just means 10, one-tenth. So are you giving at least a tenth of, of your income away to help the poor, to, uh, to help uh, the work of God? And if you're not, then, then you are out of order. But the people uh, Amos was condemning were giving the, the tithe, I imagine. They were giving all those uh, requirements. I don't think so. Um, a lot of the prophets talk about how the people were not giving the tithe. Um, they were neglecting their responsibilities and duties. So, yeah. Uh, Obadiah, shortest book in the Old Testament, single chapter, 21 verses. Obadiah is about, let me just see how I'm doing in terms of time. Oh, okay. All right. Um, it's a prophecy against Edom. What happened is uh, when Jerusalem fell, uh, the sack of uh, Jerusalem, the Edomites, which, which was a neighboring people, participated in the attacks. Um, they exploited the situation. They would attack neighboring uh, uh, villages in Judea and uh, ravage them and pillage them. And they laughed. They sort of like, ha ha. Um, and this was particularly galling in a sense of deep betrayal because of a backstory. Who, who did the Edomites come from? Esau. Esau, that's right. When Esau was born, they're like, wow, you're mighty red. So his nickname was Edom, right? Um, so... Uh, the children of Esau are called the Edomites, the children of Jacob. He also had a new name, Israel. So they're brothers. They're brother peoples. But this was a deep betrayal. It ought not to have been. So, God, so Obadiah says, judgment is going to come on you. And in that story of Esau and Jacob, we have a picture of the whole world. What is sin? What is, uh, what is the, the dark condition of humanity? It's brother not taking care of brother, but it's brother murdering brother. Um, exploiting each other, trampling on one another, because we're all actually brothers and sisters, because we're all made in the image of God, right? We all have this common lineage. So let me read Obadiah chapter 1, 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, he's talking to Edom, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, that's, he's talking about the um, sack of Jerusalem, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Listen to this. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And Edom is a picture of the whole unbelieving world. What's going to happen to the nations? As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So there's a principle of reciprocity. For the evil that they dished out, that evil um, that harm will be happen to them. And so what does justice mean? It means that the wicked will be destroyed. The new heavens and the new earth will not be a wonderful, beautiful place of paradise if the wicked are allowed to dwell there. So they must be destroyed. This is sort of like what we don't like. We don't like judgment. We don't like death. But it must be. The day of the Lord has to be judgment, destruction, doom for the wicked. So that's what the prophet Obadiah is talking about. Um, any questions on that? Okay. Jonah. So, very appropriately, Jonah is a parallel book to Obadiah. What is Jonah about? Jo uh, Jonah is about God's compassion for foreign peoples, for Gentiles. Um, God sends Jonah, he commissions Jonah to, to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is a notorious city of violence, lust, and greed. Not only that, but the uh, Ninevites, the, which is the capital of Assyria, they were uh, notorious, really uh, uh, horrific. They were basically the Nazis of the ancient world. They wouldn't just vanquish their enemies. They would torture them. Um, they would flail their skin. They would skin uh, their victims alive and then display them on walls. They would uh, line up. They would gather all the babies of a defeated village or town, line them up on the road, and then they would ride chariots over the babies. So the Assyrians were particularly notorious evil people. Um, and God says, go to the Ninevites. Uh, preach the gospel to them. Jonah says, no way, absolutely not. Because um, he has a hatred for them. Not only that, but they're threatening his people. Um, so he tries to run away, but the whole drama with the fish. So he says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. He preaches the gospel to Nineveh. He does it in the worst way. He's like, he's like I forget the exact details, like 60 days or 30 days, and God's death and judgment will come on you. And the people are like, oh, we repent, right? <laughs> yes, we believe this gospel message. And so Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew it. And uh, Jonah chapter 4 is a really funny passage. He's like, I knew it. I knew you were God, gracious and merciful, <laughs> um, full of, uh, full of uh, covenant love. Um, oh, love. Blech. I hate this. So he sits outside the city of Nineveh. He builds a little shelter. And he's just waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. He's just so angry. Um, and then God appoints a vine to grow um, over the tent to give him shade. And then the next day, he sends a worm to destroy the vine. And then the hot sun beats down on Jonah. And Jonah is so angry. And so this is the passage. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, well, I do, I do well. Sorry. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I like that last part. Basically, God loves animals too, right? <laughs> um, so what is God saying to Jonah? 
God saying, you love this plant so much, but shouldn't you love people more who are made in my image? Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, has 120,000 people in my image. And so our sin is often that we value things and objects more than we love people. And God says, you have it all wrong. Um, even, even the uh, most despicable, hated person is made in the image of God. You should love them. Um, <coughs> I, have this love, I love this quote in Augustine, in The City of God. He says this, The city of God is where the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. The city of man is where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. So it ought not to be, right? The, the kingdom of God is a place where people are valued. The story ends in an open-ended way. It's kind of, you're kind of like wondering what's going to happen. Jonah doesn't say. It just says Jonah's just like angry. Now, I like to think that Jonah did repent because he wrote the book. So he, <laughs> he went back home and thought about it for a while and then wrote it down. But it's, it's left in an open-ended way purposely because it's asking us, will we open our hearts to outsiders? Or will we remain aloof and uh, outside the city, angry at God? Will we have a narrow tribal heart? Or will we have a heart like God, wide, a missionary heart that loves all people, right? So um, any questions on Jonah? So Jonah and Obadiah kind of balance each other. Judgment is coming on all unbelieving peoples, but go out, love, preach the gospel to the whole world. Uh, to not only to Jews, but to uh, non-Jews as well. But that's why he got swallowed by the fish, because he knew those people were bad people. He, he's like, I'm not going to... Yeah, he wanted retribution. He wanted judgment. He wanted death. Yeah, yeah. he didn't want God to be nice to them. I, I did not, that's why he ran away. That's right, yeah. So how do you reconcile Obadiah? And then there's another book that we're going to look at next week called Nahum. Nahum is just like Obadiah, except worse. Um, because it talks about the death of the Assyrians, the destruction of the Assyrians. How do you reconcile Nahum and Jonah? And the answer is, it's God who decides. God will decide the destruction of the wicked. But he calls on us to go out to the wicked world and tell them and call them to repentance. Yeah. Yes? Um, what happened to the Edomites? Are they around? Uh, what, what did God mean when he said, you'll be cut off forever? Um, he's talking about the day of the Lord. So when the righteous king comes, he will trample on all of Israel's enemies. He will uh, put them under his feet, is the, the language of the Psalms. So in a sense, that hasn't happened yet, right? Because we're... Who are they? Huh? Who are they? The Edomites? Mm-hmm. Um, all of the surrounding peoples around Israel, we sort of, they don't have a continuous lineage. Like the Philistines, where are they? The Edomites, where are they? Um, the Aramean, well, the Arameans are the Syrians, but... Um, you know, other peoples. And so they don't really have a strong cultural connection. Like they don't have a cultural book, for example. Or, so they, they haven't been preserved. So they just sort of dispersed. Is it kind of safe to assume that they're somewhere in the Middle East? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> somewhere in the Middle East. But it's like 2,500 years ago. So who, who knows where they are now, right? Everyone's, you know, you might have some Edomite blood in you. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, not ethn- it's not ethnicity that's doomed, but it's unfaithfulness, right? Disbelief. Okay, so uh, Micah. Uh, Micah, because of time, I'm going to go super fast. Um, Micah is the lengthiest of the books so far. Um, the, th- the main theme I would put it is, is he talks about judgment a lot, but he ta- particularly talks about God's gracious forgiveness and restoration of his people. 
And what he says is that this restoration is not just going to be um, a return back to the way things were, right? It's not, so if this is the restoration, right, he's not going to just bring it back to Moses or even David. God is, that is. What God is going to do is he is going to do a restoration and it's going to be greater than ever. It's going to be a glorious restoration, such as never has happened in the history of Israel. Um, the Messiah will come. He will establish a kingdom of justice and peace. So let me just read you this passage. Um, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So there it is, right? The last, the day of the Lord, the, la- the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord. What is the house of the Lord? The, uh, <laughs> that's a good one too. What? The temple, right? So he's talking about the temple. Because um, it's on Zion, right? Which is a hill uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem. Um, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills. So what does that mean? It's figurative language. It's not literally that Zion is just going to go up above Mount Everest. It's talking about its prominence. Um, every ancient city built its temple on the highest prominent point the, on, on a hill, right? If you know, for example, Greece, Athens, there's the, there's the Acropolis, right? So the temple was literally always up. You always look up at the temple. And what it's saying is that the temple will be the highest of all places in the whole wide world. Um, and then it says this, and people shall flow, with it, flow to it, and many nations shall come. So here, this is a beautiful imagery. Um, what is the relationship between Israel and the Gentile peoples? Antagonism, war. But what God is saying is, the people shall flow into Jerusalem to come and worship the God of Israel. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember what Abraham was told? God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in the latter days, there's going to be this massive influx of Gentiles. I'm looking at all of you. Most, well, most of you are Gentiles. So it's happening. It's coming true. Um, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, he's, this is talking about the, uh, the Messiah, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the Messiah is going to be this wise teacher. He's going to teach the people the law, what is right and, and, and moral. And he, verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide for strong nations afar off so he's going to create justice. No more is there going to be um, injustice where you know, people are disputing and uh, cases are unresolved. Let me keep reading. And I love this imagery. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. So all these weapons of war are going to be turned into instruments of peace and prosperity. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Right, so a worldwide empire of peace. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So there you have a wonderful picture of the future, um, the, the latter days, uh, Micah, two talks about, Micah 3 talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, but Micah 4 talks about the temple being rebuilt uh, and, and Gentiles coming in. The Messiah will come. He will establish peace. No more war. 
no more violence, um, no more school shootings, um, but it will be a place of, of peace and prosperity. Um, this is awaiting us. So the question then is, um, this is why people were really confused when Jesus came, right? Jesus says, I am he. It is coming, uh, fulfilled. The latter days, the day of the Lord is here. People are like, great. When do we crush the Romans, <laughs> right? Uh, where is this lasting peace? It didn't happen. Um, so the answer is that Jesus comes, in t- comes twice. So we're still waiting. So uh, remember I said there's t- a two-age eschatology? We're between the ages. Paul often talks about how the age to come is already here. We're already experiencing it. We are a new creation, right? Um, so we already have in sort of incipient form. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says that um, uh, the coming of the kingdom of God is like a beachhead on uh, Nazi Germany um, where the allied forces have landed on a small corner and, and now uh, under the cover of night and now we slowly make our advance and then we're going to expand throughout the whole world. And so we're still waiting for all of these prophecies in Micah and so forth to come true when the king returns. Any, any final questions? Yes. So because he may keep his ways and then he may walk his path, um, that's different than he will write his law on our hearts. He's a little less extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You're talking about the new covenant, right? Yeah. What was your question? Yeah, so, so, so the theologians have this concept called already but not yet. It's everything has already come true. All of the day of the Lord prophecies have already come true. You say, well, where are the destruction of God's enemies? Satan, right? Satan's cast into the pit. He's chained and bound. Um, so all of the prophecies have come true, but in incipient form, in preliminary form, the fullness of it is awaits, already but not yet. So we are already saved, but not yet. We are already made righteous in Christ, but not yet. Do you see what I'm saying? And then last thing, this uh, thing about the fig tree. It seems like the goal of everybody is to hang out under a vine or a fig tree. So what was it that um, <laughs> so special about hanging I don't know. Lawrence, let's, let's you and I go sit under a fig tree. And I think, I think we'll find like some sort of camaraderie, kinship. We'll be like, this is the life. This is the way it was supposed to be. <laughs> All right, let me close in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us these lavish promises. Thank you that these promises are fulfilled in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.